0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are uh, back in the book of Isaiah this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and even if you don't, there should be one within arm's reach, probably in one of the sleeves underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Turn to Isaiah chapter 44, and you can just put your finger there for a moment as we kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at this morning. Chapter... Forty, all the way through chapter fifty-five, comprise uh, what students of the Old Testament might call the Book of the Servant. The, it's referred to uh, in Old Testament scholarship as the, as this Book of the Servant, and these chapters bear the title because there are there are four distinct ser- what are called servant songs. Uh, scattered throughout these chapters. Each one of them is describing some aspect, some, some dimension of God's personal agent, this individual who will be empowered by the Spirit of God to, to carry out his saving work and his purposes for Israel and Judah, but not just for Israel and Judah, but also for the nations. The first song, we actually saw it last Sunday in chapter 42, and you, you read uh, this description of the Lord's servant in verses um, 1 to 4 of chapter 42. There's a second servant song in chapter 49 in verses 1 to 6, a third in chapter 50 verses 4 to 9, and then there's also a fourth and most probably most well-known servant song in chapter 52 all the way into chapter 53. That's, that's one that we know well. The Lord's servant, as we look at these different references, uh, Isaiah tells us he is the one who brings justice to the nations. He's the one who hears the Lord's word. He's one who walks in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. Uh, he is one who gives life as a, gives his life as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of sinners. And in the end, he rises from the dead triumphant over death and hell and actually purchases and redeems a people for himself from every tribe And tongue and people and nation. We know him to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Um, Hebrews describes him as the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation or image or icon of the Father. But you and I have the benefit of hindsight. As we look at these Old Testament passages, you and I have the benefit of hindsight. Jesus' life, his his death, his his, ministry, his death, and his resurrection, that's all been given to us, that's been attested to us uh, through independent eyewitness testimony. That's what we're looking at in Equipping Hour. We're, We're surveying the New Testament, and we're looking at the Gospels right now. You know, All that Jesus said, all that he did, all that he fulfilled is... That's all recorded for us, and, and not only is it recorded for us, it's explained to us. The apostolic witness of the early church is recorded and, and explained and handed down to us in what we call the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. So when we, when we come to a passage like, uh, or passages like 40 to 55, we can't unsee Jesus. He's everywhere. Of course, he's the Lamb of God who was pierced through for our transgressions. Of course, he's the chosen one in whom the Father's soul delights. Of course, he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke's gospel even reiterates that. He was executed like a common criminal upon a Roman cross. And because there was no deceit in his mouth, he was qualified to bear the sins of many. We see the fingerprints of Jesus and the faithfulness of God all over 40 to 55 when we read them and as we're studying them. But when Isaiah preached them and when he recorded these words for the people and wrote them down, their truthfulness and their trustworthiness may not have seemed as transparent to them as it does to us. And you have to consider the circumstances in which Judah is in. They are, like Israel, staring down exile in a foreign nation. They are, they are surrounded by nations greater and mightier than them on every side. The Assyrians are dominating the world stage. The, the, later, the Babylonians will do so. The Egyptians were a major player in the region. So, so they're just this little tiny speck in this grand scheme. All the, and so when Isaiah speaks of all the words of promise, all the glimpses of kingdom glory for Israel... Um, and and he, he does that many times throughout chapters 1 to 39. All the portraits that he paints of God's people, Jew and Gentile, together, triumphant with the Lord reigning over a renewed heaven and a new earth. That's all well and good, but the question would have lingered, how is that going to happen? And, and who is going to make that happen ultimately? And alongside that question of how and by whom, there's also... The remaining question of, does God even care to? Does he want to? And we said last Sunday that chapters 40 to 55 are God's definitive answer to that question and to those questions. Because in these chapters, Isaiah details in advance how he's going to deliver Israel nationally and how he's going to deliver them spiritually. And not just Israel and Judah, how he's going to deliver people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. These chapters are meant to sustain faltering, faithless people that are living in exile. That's their purpose. It is that these chapters are meant to give assurance that ultimate renewal and restoration are absolutely to come. God had not been defeated by the false gods of Babylon. He had not been won up by some earthly superpower. God had not even been uh, hamstrung by the faithlessness and the faltering of his own covenant people. Despite all that's going on around them, he wants us to know at the, at the foundational level that the Lord is the king of kings and the Lord is worthy of our trust. This is who he is. And he wastes no time reassuring them of his care. As we come to chapter 40, he begins immediately in verse 1 saying, Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And these words capture the heart of, of these opening two and a half chapters. All right. Isaiah 40-42 to 42 teaches us that God cares for his sheep. He cares for his faithless, faltering, flailing sheep, both Jew and Gentile, and he will move heaven and earth to bring them to himself which is why these chapters operate as faith builders, for you and for me. The New Testament, interestingly enough, describes believers in Christ's church using very similar imagery that we see in the Old Testament. It speaks, the Apostle Peter, if you look at the first opening salutation in 1 Peter, he addresses it to to, uh, the churches in, in Galatia, and he refers to those people as what? Aliens and strangers and exiles—it's the same terminology. Paul, Paul reminds us in chapter three of of, um, of uh, Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven; that our citizenship is is not on this earth; that that our final hope is not on in this world. This broken, fallen world that we live in is not all there is. We as believers, or look forward to Christ's return, like Israel did, when Messiah's kingdom will come and he, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our Lord commands us to pray. God hasn't been defeated by all the false religions of human achievement. God hasn't been one-upped by any earthly superpower, any political ideology. God hasn't even been hamstrung by the faithlessness and the idolatry and the hypocrisy of his own church. We stand between we stand between the cross and Christ's return, surrounded, as the writer of Hebrews says, by a great cloud of witnesses. And and therefore we have all the more reason to lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and to run the race to win with endurance, as the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That's what we are commanded to do. And so when we read, as we did and studied last week, words of comfort to Israel in the opening uh, verses of chapter 40 and 41, we should take heart. We should see in that encouragement, When God commands a whole host of individuals to bring comfort, as he does in the opening verses, to to bring comfort and consolation and pity, to lift the burden of sorrow and distress that was resting on his people, we should be filled with hope. As we, when, when God promises rescue, and Isaiah says that he in, in verse 11 is like a shepherd who will tend his flock, in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, he will gently lead the nursing ewes. When we, when we read that, we should be comforted and consoled. And when God makes clear, as he does in verses 12 to 31 of chapter 40, that he is unparalleled in every way from the gods, so-called gods of this world, greater in wisdom, greatness, distinctiveness, dominion, management of the cosmos, and his, in his own self-giving, when he tells us he is unparalleled in all of that, we shouldn't question whether God is trustworthy. Why would you not trust one like that? That's really the, the thrust of these opening verses. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He knows our frailty. He made us. He knows that we are but dust, and he promises to give of himself freely, as he says at the end of chapter 40, to all who wait for him, all who trust in him, they will gain new strength. He says they will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. God will be there to pick his people up because, as we saw in chapter 41, he's the Lord of history. He controls everything. He's the one who raises up world rulers, and he is the one who ultimately exposes the world's idolatries. And whether he's giving uh, victory to the lowly or transforming nobodies into somebodies or supplying provision to the needy, God is bankable for his beloved children. That's, that's what we saw in chapter 41. And he's going to prove himself in such a way that he receives maximal glory. So there are words of, words of comfort to Israel that should be a comfort to us and an encouragement to us. And when we read words of comfort to the nations, like we saw at the latter verses of chapter 41 and into the opening 17 verses of 42, we should, we should cast anxiety to the bottom of the sea. When God promises to bring salvation to the far reaches of creation through his servant, who we're introduced to in the beginning of chapter 42, such that those who are blind and deaf and trapped in their futile way of life can now look to him and live. How can our hearts not be filled with praise? And as Yahweh's personal chosen agent, this servant of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, comes to the foreground. He is going to be the source of worldwide revelation and consolation, not just for Israel and not just for Judah, but for the nations, for all the nations. He's going to open blind eyes, Isaiah says. He's going to lead captives out of darkness into the light of the true knowledge of God. And so we, we ended last week, and I think Isaiah makes the case that, yes, God cares for his sheep, he cares for his sheep, his faithless sheep, his faltering and flailing sheep, and he is going to move heaven and earth, literally, to bring them to himself. Now, what he does from chapter 42 and verse 18, all the way to chapter 44 and verse 23, is to reveal his future plans of how he's going to do that. And since Israel, we said, isn't capable, nor were they. Even desirous of carrying the light of the knowledge of God to the nations, then God says, I'm going to have to do it. I will do it. And so we saw uh, when we did our overview two weeks ago that in these chapters, God's future promise, uh, plan, excuse me, promises two things. First, that He says captivity will be ended for Israel by national liberation. That's laid out in chapter 42 in the opening verses of chapter 43. God's people are going to go into bondage in Babylon, but their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, is going to bring them back out. They won't remain there. They will not disappear. He's going to take them out just as he did. He removed them out of Egypt. And secondly, we saw that sin will be dealt with by spiritual redemption. That is a key part of the Lord's future plans. So not only national liberation, but spiritual redemption are laid out. We don't get the specifics. He doesn't tell us how God is going to forgive their sin. That's going to come later on in chapters 52 and 53. He simply says that he will forgive their sin and that he will deal with it in such a way that it will wipe it away. And of course, the not so subtle implication of these chapters is that only the true and living God can do this. Only a, only a God who is, who is alive and, and lives and is superior to all other, all other gods could possibly lead them out of bondage, could possibly lead them out of, uh, out of sin's curse, and, and obviously no idol is ever going to be able to tell them that before it happens. Now, what we want to look at this morning is the content of, that centers around chapters 44 to 48, where God details the national liberation part of his future plans. That's what we want to consider this morning. God is going to raise up a Gentile ruler and a Gentile king to be the one through whom Israel's national deliverance in a, in a, uh, in a preliminary way will come to pass. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And there's a lot we could look at in these chapters. And and so, what I want to do this morning is zero in specifically on the final verses of chapter 44 and the first eight verses of chapter 45, where Isaiah wants us to consider and understand that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. That earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. In other words, God knows the future, God reveals the future. And he controls the future in its every detail such that his purposes will be established. And so that's, that's really kind of the key takeaway from this text, that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. And we're going to see that in kind of three, three parts. First, in God's promise to deliver them out of bondage, out of captivity. Secondly, in his personal designation of Cyrus as the one to do that, And thirdly, in his providential determination to make it so. So you can kind of use that as a a preliminary roadmap outline for our text study this morning. We're going to see that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees by God's promise to deliver his personal designation and his providential determination to make it so. So I want to look particularly at chapter 44, and I want to look at beginning in verse 24. Verse 24. And in these verses, from 24 to 27, we learn that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees on account of God's promise to deliver them. He's going to lead them out of bondage. Now, throughout this whole section, Isaiah is still kind of answering implicitly the question: Is is the Lord truly God? Is the Lord truly the one true and living God? And the way he answers that question is to show over and over and over again that God knows the future and God controls the future. In other words, because he knows all things and causes them to come to pass, right? he must be God. Whoever knows the future, whoever can control the future and turn it where he needs it to go at any time, that is the one who's sovereign and that is the one who is truly God. Notice how he begins in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. And we'll stop right there for just a second. Isaiah's the messenger here, right? It's, this is Isaiah's words, but it's God who's ultimately speaking. Thus says the Lord. And the way he identifies himself here is critical. God refers to himself as your Redeemer. The one who formed you from the womb. This word, this reality that the Lord is a redeemer, is a is a rich, rich truth. And I I fully intend in the not too distant future to preach a topical message on just that reality. It is such a such a rich theme of scripture. The Lord is a redeemer. And a a kinsman redeemer in that culture was a technical term for a next of kin who had the right to take his helpless relative's need upon himself as if it were his own. That's what a redeemer does. A redeemer is frequently translated, this word redeemer can also be translated as avenger in in the Old Testament. If someone took the life of another person, the Redeemer was the closest family member of that victim who had the right to pursue the murderer of his relative. The whole concept of a Redeemer dramatically shines a spotlight on the substitutionary nature of the relationship between the Redeemer and the redeemed. Right, one being dead, or sometimes just helpless in debt, would be acted, would, this Redeemer would act in their place, in their place, in their stead. The place of a kinsman redeemer was something that no one should um, cut in line to grab hold of and, and usurp. And you see that in the book of Ruth, right? Boaz says, I, I'm not the closest relative. I can't intercede here. He had to wait for the other relative to uh, kind of pass on that. And, and so at, at the same time, it is a right rather than a duty. So It emphasizes the free choice of the one who comes forward as the Redeemer. They don't have to do it. They choose to do it. So when God identifies himself, as he does here in the text, as the Redeemer of his people, he is saying, you are my family. I've chosen freely to identify myself with you as my next of kin, and I'm taking your needs upon myself as if they're my own. I am the mighty, and I will act in your place who are helpless to pay the price. God is reminding them that as his next of kin, having formed them, he says, from the womb, that he has lovingly pledged himself to take and to carry their every burden as if it was his own. The Lord isn't just Israel's Redeemer, though. He's our Redeemer also. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of. In Titus, in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Savior who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To make us part of his family. That's ultimately what he did. He, Jesus is identifying himself with us as our next of kin, and he has lovingly pledged himself to us, promising to take and carry our every burden, especially the burden of our sin. And he carries it on himself as if it were, as if it were his own. He has acted in our place. He has cleansed us, he has purified us, and he's empowering us to live for him, to be zealous for good deeds by his spirit. And that is, that is, is true for Israel as it is for the believer in Christ today. But coming back to the text, Isaiah says, the Lord is your redeemer he is the God says I am the one who formed you from the womb I the Lord and the maker of all things stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone causing the omens of boasters to fail making fools out of diviners causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers God says I'm in charge of everything I'm in charge of it all. He causes the omens or literally the signs of false prophets to fail. When a false prophet goes out there and makes these bold but wrong claims, they are not considering their creator. They don't have any control over the universe, and they are not aligned with the creator of all things. God says, I'm the one who thwarts their predictions and exposes them for the hucksters that they truly are. I'm the one who makes diviners and the world's wise men who've chosen a path of foolishness, I'm the one who makes them play the fool." And of course, he's not just carting all human wisdom out to the landfill and dumping it. He's simply saying that because, because reality is there is truth in the world that reflects the divine nature that's common to all men. So, you know, not all truth that's not in the Bible is not true. He's, but he's saying that there is a so-called wisdom that tries to make sense of the world. It tries to wrap its arms around the flow of history and the reason for all things. And they try and do that apart from God. He says, and that wisdom is worthless. It's like trying to finish a thousand-piece puzzle when you don't have half of the pieces. You're just never going to get the full picture. And that's what the wisdom of the world does. And God says, I'm the one who shows them their foolishness. But on the other hand, and this is important, he contrasts that in verse 26 with, he says, I'm also the one who confirms the word sent by his servant and brings to pass the purpose announced by his messengers. When God sends a true prophet, A true messenger, Deuteronomy 13, tells us there is one way that you know he's a true prophet. How? He speaks the truth. What he says comes to pass. If what he says comes to pass, he says, you know that I'm the one who stands behind all that. So the whole point of these verses is that God is jealous for his glory and no word but his word is going to come to pass. And he's going to ensure that that's the case. God is in sole charge of everything. Everything. And we have to be honest, sometimes the things that God does in the world can overwhelm us, right? I mean, we look at, the, we look at our circumstances and we see what God's doing in the world and it's, we find it almost ominous and threatening. A sudden loss of a loved one. A trial that has really no end date. A, uh, a turn of events so abhorrent that we find them just displeasing in the highest level. Can I just say, when you're overwhelmed about what God's doing, the solution is to look to who he is. The Lord is your redeemer. He is the one who has formed you from the womb. If you're in Christ, you are part of his family, James 1 says, by the will of God. And nothing will ever make contact with your life except your heavenly father lovingly allows it. God is not just wasting words here either. Verses 24 to 26 and the opening verses uh, part of 26 is building towards something specific at the end of the chapter. God is Israel's redeemer. He is the maker of everything, thwarting those who speak falsely, establishing the true word of his divinely appointed messengers. And that's the word that he's about to give, a true word through his appointed messenger. And we see that at the end of verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27. He says, It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise, her up, or raise up her ruins again. It is I who say to the depths of the sea be dried up, and it is I who will make your rivers dry. God's message to Judah is that, he's going to, is, that, is that it will be restored. She is going to be restored. He speaks about her as if she's a person here, personified. The cities of Judah are going to be rebuilt. He, his, her ruins are going to be raised up. God's emphasis is on his initiative. I say she shall be inhabited. I say that Judah shall be rebuilt. I will raise up her ruins. And then he says, you who are exiles... In bondage are going to go home. Verse 27, I who, it is I who say to you, the depths of the sea be dried up. It is I who will make your rivers dry. This is Exodus language. Once again, we've seen this already several times. Isaiah loves to come back to the imagery of the Exodus. It alludes to the parting of the Red Sea. God's drying up the Jordan River so his people could pass over over dry ground as they entered the promised land. And the implication of these verses is this. The same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who dried up the Jordan River to bring his people home, is the same God who is speaking to you now. The same God who directly intervened in human history at the time of the Exodus will intervene, he says, once again to lead his people out of exile. Israel is coming back to the land out of captivity. Jerusalem's future is a part of God's future purposes. They needed to hear that. They needed to know that in bondage. And so we see that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees And that's laid out to us here on account of God's promise to deliver. God says, I have said it and I will do it. God's promise to lead them out of captivity. The question is, how's he going to do that? How is he going to do that? And that leads to the second point that we want to look at. Earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees on account of God's personal designation of Cyrus. God's personal designation of this individual Cyrus. Israel's message reaches, uh, excuse me, Isaiah's message here reaches an apex in verse 28 in the opening verses of chapter 45. Not only is God promising, yeah, I'm going to deliver you, he tells them who that deliverer will be, and he names him personally. Look at verse 28. He says, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. I'm going to raise up her ruins. I'm going to part the seas in in an Exodus-like movement back to the land. And then verse 28, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundations will be laid. God names him in advance, Remember, Isaiah is maybe 140 years removed from the time of Cyrus. It's not, now it's not unta- entirely unprecedented for God to name someone uh, before they come into the scene. God names the uh, Josiah in first verse- Uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, he uses a nameless prophet to say that Josiah will come as a future king. Uh, And even in the New Testament, we see uh, a word given that uh, Ananias was going to be the person that Saul was going to, uh, of Tarsus, was supposed to meet up with, and he's named before he even meets him. But Here again, some 140 years beforehand, God personally designates Cyrus, this future king of the Persian Empire, as his shepherd who will bring the Lord's will to pass. Now kings were, uh, it's not unusual to be called a shepherd as a king in the Near Eastern world, that was common. In fact, Cyrus's name in Elamite means shepherd. So there's likely a little bit of a play on words here by Isaiah. He says He names him, but he also speaks of him as the Lord's shepherd. So, God reveals that this future individual, Cyrus, is going to issue a a royal decree and that the exiles will come back to the land, the temple will be rebuilt. And of course, as we look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, what do you see? You see in chapter 1 the exact details of how Cyrus was called by God and issued the decree for them to go back to the land and to lay the foundation for the temple. We know that that took place in 538 BC. Now, up to this point, there isn't much that Israel would have taken issue with. God's the one who moves the nations? Yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're good with that. God's the one who removes kings and establishes kings. That was pretty standard knowledge. God even is the one who gives individuals divine right to rule. That's not unusual, Where they would have balked is at verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. To call Cyrus a shepherd? Okay, I'm okay with that. To call Cyrus his anointed? Wait a second. What are you talking about? The Lord's anointed is a title that's been given to the Lord's king. Saul is called the Lord's anointed. David, obviously, is referred to as the Lord's anointed. The rightful heirs to David's household are among the Lord's anointed. And, of course, we've already seen the promise of a future Davidic king who would be the Lord's anointed, who would rule the nations, and his kingdom would be eternal. We saw him in chapter 9 and um, chapter 11 and so forth. But Isaiah says the Lord's anointed, this one who's going to deliver his people, isn't going to be a, a son of David. He's going to be what? A pagan king. This is not what the people want to hear. This is not the message they were expecting. They're trading out one conqueror in Babylon for another conqueror, another king. That's not what we want. Not only that, this pagan king is given Davidic responsibilities. He rules the nation. He is going to rebuild the temple. That's what the Lord's anointed did. That's what Solomon did. That's what David wanted to do. To be called the Lord's anointed implies three things, really. Appointment by God. A designation by God. Secondly, it implies close association with the Lord. And thirdly, it implies an endowment by God being outfit for this task. All three of those are bound up in this term of anointing. It's where we get our New Testament word Messiah, or well, it's not Old Testament word, but Messiah, the anointed one. And God says through Isaiah, all of this is going to be showered on a Gentile ruler. He goes on to describe what he will do through this anointed king, this pagan king in verses 2 and 3. He says, God speaking, I will go before you, speaking to Cyrus, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. His point is clear. He's saying all Cyrus's achievements will at bottom, be the Lord's doing. They will be the Lord's doing. The success of Cyrus's career, from its very outset in the distant kingdom of Anshan, to his displacement of the mighty Babylonian empire by the Persians, was something that his contemporaries, as they saw that, as they witnessed that, they said, "Wow, this could only be one beloved of the gods." Right? That he would have this kind of success. What Isaiah does is actually make it clear to us and take us behind the curtain to the reality. It was the Lord who led him by the hand onto the center stage of human history. It was God who did these things. He says, I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. God says, I will give you the treasures of darkness so that you may know that it is that it is I. The, the emphasis grammatically... In every other way, it's saying God is the one who does this. Why does God designate Cyrus as His anointed? He tells us in verse four and five and six, ultimately, for two reasons: for the well-being of His people, Israel, and for the glory of the watching world. Look at verse four. For the Lord, He's going to do this and call you. He says, "For the sake of Jacob, my servant." and Israel my chosen one. I have also called you by your name, and I have given you a title of honor. Again, he's still speaking to Cyrus. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that encompasses the whole globe that there is no one besides me. God says he's going to call him For the sake of his people, his chosen people, and for the sake of the nations. And even though Israel would continue to fall short, we said last time that they still didn't have a new heart. They still didn't believe and trust God the way they ought. The nations certainly aren't going to stumble out of their blindness. But the thing is, God is playing the long game. He is playing the long game. Though Cyrus's, uh, through excuse me, Cyrus's work, Israel will remain a nation. Instead of being in bondage and kind of being destroyed, they will remain a nation. And through that nation, God will raise up one far greater than Cyrus, who is the Lord's servant who will come and bring the knowledge of God to the whole world. And so Cyrus's calling and his, his works While they are partial, they are integral to the fulfillment of the Lord's purposes. And so yet again, we see here in these verses that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. Cyrus is called by God. He is empowered by God. He is is anointed by God to accomplish his purposes. Thirdly and finally, we see the earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees on account of God's providential determination. On account of God's providential determination. Cyrus's calling and career and his part to play in the grand scheme of history are going to come to pass. They will come to pass because God himself is moving every molecule of the universe to that appointed end. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Our God has his hand inside the movement of all of life regularities, all of life's regularities. You see that, right? He speaks of light and darkness. It's kind of the normal patterns and rhythms of day and night. He is also described here as the executive behind all of life's experiences. He causes well-being, and he creates calamity. You say, God's responsible for calamity? God's behind calamity? And that's what the text says. <laughs> he is. Cyrus was bad news for the people that he conquered. <laughs> no one wanted to see Cyrus coming, but he was exactly what God's people needed to return to the land and for God's purposes to be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. None of the things are going to happen that happen in the world outside of God's control. And that's a point that he makes crystal clear just a chapter later in chapter 46 in verse 9. He says, I am God, once again, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. He says, I have my hand in everything and I will make it come to pass exactly as I have Purposed. And what Isaiah has said explicitly already in these preceding verses, he then summarizes in a final word picture in verse 8. He says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. He says, I, the Lord, have created it. The calling, the progress, the apex of Cyrus's career are all, all God's handiwork. And he says at the end, I am the Lord who, cre- who does all these things. Excuse me, I am the Lord who has created it. In other, You could almost translate it as a, as a perfect, I have created, I think the NAS does this, I have created it. I have determined to create it. In context, God is committing himself to divine, he's committing divine creative power to this whole Cyrus project, all of it, both in the near term and the long term, such that at the end of the day, God's deliverance of his people out of captivity is nothing short of the direct soul and unmistakable act of God. And what begins in the mind of God In heaven, like rain falling from the sky, he says it cascades down and brings forth the fruit of righteousness and salvation upon the earth. It's a beautiful metaphor, beautiful word picture. What is he saying? Earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. So where does that leave you and me? Well, the same God who promised deliverance and the same God who personally designated, and the same God who providentially determined that Cyrus was going to be the one to lead Israel out of bondage, that God still reigns supreme. He is still orchestrating every detail of our lives. He is the one now who is forming light and creating darkness. He is the one who is causing well-being. He is the one who is creating calamity. And that, as a believer, should not cause us to recoil. It should cause us to rejoice. Because if God plays the long game when it comes to keeping his promises and saving his people, then we must as well. We must as well. And so the next time disaster and difficulty touch your life and my life, we need to echo the words of Job shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then we need to be like Job and endeavor by the grace of God and all, it, and all of it, not to sin with our lips. If our powerful God can use a pagan king to protect the nation of Israel, or as we read in our scripture reading this morning in Acts, he can use prideful brothers, remember Joseph's brothers? To preserve his promises to Abraham. If God can use a Roman cross to purify and redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation like he did with our Lord Jesus Christ, surely, surely he can use our trials for his glory and our good. You say, well, did God keep his promises? Did did God f- fulfill his, his end of the bargain? Well, he did. Look at Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, in verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, probably referring to Jeremiah 29, and I think it's chapter 51, where he speaks about some prophetic decrees. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and with gold and with goods and with cattle together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This is 140 years later. God keeps his promises. God fulfills his word. God accomplishes his will according to all his good pleasure and none, none can stay his hand. And that's the message that we need to take away from this text this morning. And next week, we're going to see how he not only will promises to liberate Israel nationally, but that he will ultimately redeem them spiritually as we look at chapter 53. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this comforting truth that you are in control of all things. Lord, we know there are people out there that would reject this reality, they they want us think that they have the ultimate control over their decisions and all that's happening around them. But Lord, both life experience and the Word of God confirm for us that that we have no control over anything. And um, what a comfort to know that even even calamity, just disaster that might befall us uh, for your people is nothing that we need to. Um, uh, be fearful of. We don't need to be anxious of that, but we can look to you and trust that even in the midst of that, that we can accept adversity from your hands and trust you. And uh, we can take you at your word. Lord, help us to herald that good news, that message. May it only confirm for us the realities that, that we can take your word. You are bankable for your beloved children. So Lord, help us to remember that today and this week as we walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.